Hi everyone, welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, host and creator of this podcast. As part of the sixth season theme, Unfinished Business, I invited Akemi Kochiyama, the granddaughter of longtime legendary Japanese-American civil rights activist, Yuri Kochiyama. Her grandmother, Yuri, along with her family, like many Japanese-Americans, were forcibly sent to prison camps during World War II. That experience would be a turning point in her life when she began her lifelong commitment to social and racial justice. Yuri may be best remembered for her friendship with Malcolm X, and like her other peer, Grace Lee Boggs, she set the tone for Black and Asian solidarity. On what would be Yuri's 100th birthday, her legacy and contributions to the Asian American movement comes at a critical time with the current anti-Asian violence and in the aftermath of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders. I spoke to Akemi about Yuri's legacy and how her grandma's work has played an important role in the way that Asian and Pacific Islander communities are currently shaping up. Akemi also talked about Yuri's devotion to seeing stronger Black and Asian alliances and her efforts to speak on reparations, anti-imperialism, and anti-capitalism. She also talked about her ongoing archival work for years as she hopes to make her grandma's work accessible to all communities. I also got her to speak about many of her family members who are also a big part of the movement work that wasn't just centered on Yuri and what she hopes to pass on to her young adult daughters. I can't thank Akemi enough for taking the time to talk about her work and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. This episode is sponsored by Red Scarf Revolution. Red Scarf Revolution is a merchandise line that honors and celebrates the Cambodian diaspora identity and experience. Feel free to check out their merchandise line and get yourself a t-shirt, hat, or other gifts. Be sure to visit www.redscarfrevolution.com or on their Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution to learn more about their work. Hi, everyone. So welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. So I am really excited about this uh, guest that I have today. And her name is Akemi Kochiyama. She is a scholar, activist, community builder who currently serves as a director of advancement at Manhattan Country School. She is also the co-director of the Yuri Kochiyama Archives Project and co-editor of Passing It On, a memoir by Yuri Kochiyama. As a graduate of Spelman College, Akemi is also a doctoral candidate in the PhD program in cultural anthropology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and serves on the board of the Malcolm X and Dr. Betty Shabazz Memorial and Educational Center. So I want to say it's an honor to have you on the, the show and I'm really looking forward to talking about your family's long history with activism and the historical work that you and your family have been doing for generations to uncover and examine the generational violence that you and so many black and Japanese Americans have experienced in America. Uh, your grandmother, the late great Yuri Gojiyama, was proactive in her work on the redress of Japanese Americans that were incarcerated during World War II. She was also active in her work on military and police abolition, and she was also best known for her longtime solidarity work with both black and Asian communities on civil rights issues. Her friendship with Malcolm X, Asada Shakur, and other black leaders demonstrate part of her commitment to the liberation of black people and the fights that she would take up for our community. So, uh, Akemi, I want to ask you, how have you been doing this summer? And in, in terms, I know that you've 
been going through so much right now working to uh, prepare your daughters uh, into college. And how has that been like for you so far? Um, it's been a good summer. It's been extremely uh, busy and, uh, you know, there's so much happening, right, um, in the world and uh, happening that's so related to so many of the issues that, you know, uh, so many people who've been doing, you know, civil rights and human rights and social justice work for generations, so much is, is happening right now um, that we, you know, really have to pay attention to and respond to. Um, and so I think it's been both a very busy time and also really a real time to take stock and really pay attention to what we could all be doing right right now uh, to build more solidarity, to fight police brutality and so many other uh, uh, forces that are that are happening right now. So um, I think it's, it's both you know overwhelming and scary in some ways. Um, a lot of the stuff that's happening, the kind of uh, incredible racism that has been uh, revealed, but I think it's also an opportunity um, uh, and a really important opportunity, especially around sort of the issue of anti-Asian violence and, and anti-Asian racism, um, which is something that I'm not sure everyone was convinced was a real thing. Um, so I think um, it's an opportunity as well. I think with COVID-19, especially with the Delta variant, we see what it unmasks. We see the anti-Asian violence that came in as a result of it. As you were just alluding to earlier, there are many people that felt that Asian people can't be discriminated against or face racism. And then you saw what happened in Atlanta recently, which I'll dive more into. And also what the virus, what it has done to black and brown communities. Uh, we saw mm -hmm. the distribution of vaccines and the communication, the lack of transparency. And because of because of the policies and the politicians who are in office, a lot of these communities have been underserved and not getting getting the uh, the vaccines, and therefore it's caused many deaths in these communities. So we see what a pandemic can do for all of these communities and what mm -hmm. it can really reveal. Uh, I know that recently you've been working very digital, very uh, diligently on Yuriko Chiyama's archives and you've been working on her estate. So I want you to uh, share with us uh, what that work has been like and what have you actually uh, discovered in the archiving work that you've been uh, doing. Um, I think uh, first to say that this is a project we've been, uh, my aunt and I, my family's been involved in for many years, um, more than 20 years uh, trying to sort of really uh, get a sense of everything that's in the archive, where everything is, uh, and try to sort of organize it and and think about how it could be most useful, right? Um, and so I think it's been sort of a process of consolidating things and figuring out where things are um, and what the big themes are, um, and then figuring out you know where it should live and you know how can, how can the most amount of people have access? I think that's been our biggest priority is public access. Um, and, and I've learned a lot about, you know, my, my grandmother's involved with so many movements, but um, one of the really lucky things is that she did so much personal correspondence. Um, she also was an incredible journal writer. She kept many different kinds of journals, political journals, personal journals, uh, family journals, um, date books that had every single thing that she did every day of her life for like, I don't know, about 60 years in a row. Mm. Um, and so it's an incredible archive, overwhelming. You could spend an art uh, lifetime reading it probably. Um, and uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of letters um, from World War II between, you know, 
442 soldiers on the front lines to family members uh, to uh, the thousands of letters that she wrote to political prisoners um, over the, you know, the last couple of decades of her life uh, to many, many speeches. Um, so there's so many ways, I think, that what's so amazing to me is there's so many ways to look at the work she was doing, look at the movements that were happening, how they intersect and overlap, uh, because she kept such good notes in many different ways, both her personal perspective on what was happening, what was happening in her family, um, but also what was happening in the world. Also, she, you know, collected newspaper clippings. She went to sort of every single political event um, that happened in Harlem <laughs> for, you know, about 50 years straight. So um, it's an incredible documentation of multiple social justice movements, as well as her own family's life, um, as well as Japanese internment, as well as, you know, many other uh, sort of historical moments. Um, it's an incredible documentation of that um, from many different perspectives. So I think it's just really rich in so much valuable information um, and perspective uh, and that many people are using and and, and and are finding useful for various different kinds of work that they're doing from researchers to activists to people building community organizations, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's valuable in many ways. And it really comes at such a critical time right now, uh, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement and the Stop Asian Hate movement. And oftentimes I would, I would hear people say, like from the Asian communities, well, like what have black people done for our, our community or on the other side, like what have Asian people done for black communities? And mm -hmm. it's very important to uncover the historical work because Yuriko Chiyama and Grace Lee Boggs, especially, like those who especially have done incredible black and Asian solidarity work for decades. And it's, I, I think it's very refreshing that you're doing this work because all this history that you're working on is going to be accessible to the public. And it'll show that yes, that black and Asian solidarity have existed for decades, if not going as far as Frederick Douglass back in mm -hmm. the end of the Civil War. And I want to shout out uh, Rohan Jolie, uh, a fellow Blasian American who uh, brings this up. And this is something that we weren't taught in our history, right? And we have been seeing this big push to teach the full version of American history. And I wanted to get your response because we've seen this criticism of this critical race theory talk that um, a lot of white GOP politicians have been so adamant against. And, yeah, and, so yeah. Mm -hmm. there's, there's very particular, you know, there's a very clear reason, right, why people don't want to, you know, there's certain part, people don't want to talk about critical race theory or look at, at these histories, right, because they don't want us to really understand, right, where our histories intersect and overlap, where we have incredible solidarity um, and a history of, of solidarity and resistance together, right, and that it can be beneficial and it is beneficial to people of color in this country to be in solidarity. Um, and also there's a long history of black and Asian activists from Malcolm X to Bayard Rustin, to Yuri Koshiyama, to Gracie Boggs, uh, to uh, Matulu Shakur, Tupac's father, uh, uh, so many people who were so involved in each other's movements and not just to talk about black Asian solidarity, but, talk, but because they were in support of our humanity. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, not not for the sake of, of black Asian solidarity, but for the sake of humanity, because they saw the 
the connections between, you know, what happened in Asia and Africa under colonialism and imperialism and how that continues right here in this United States and how it serves that, that narrative um, to keep us separated, right? For us not to understand our common history, um, how various examples of US, you know, of, of legislation and, and, and things in the United States have worked to disenfranchise us all. Right. And the more that we understand these things and make these connections like Yuri did, you know, learning from Malcolm, right, that if I study my history and I really study the history of Asians in this country and abroad, if I really look at that in the history of African-Americans and Africans abroad, I actually can see so many connections. Right. Um, she learned that from Malcolm. Right. And that was critical. And that's, you know, so important. This is why it's why there's this huge movement against history, against teaching of, of the civil rights, right? Because they don't want us to know it because it's empowering, because it's revealing, right? Um, and, you know, to keep us, you know, fighting like crabs in a barrel is, you know, you know, serves certain people's interests, right? And I think it's really important, right? That, you know, as Malcolm would say, know your history, right? Know your history, not, not just your own history, but the history of others, right? So I think, Right now in this moment, you know, I mean, for years, you know, my grandmother talked a lot to Asian American audiences, right? About really understanding the history of Asians in this country, the history of Asians and civil rights in this country and how, and how it serves us to be in solidarity with people of color. Affirmative action is beneficial to Asian Americans, right? And that, you know, and, and Yuri spoke about this at length, um, you know, a, a lot about this and that, you know, this idea of Asians wanting to assimilate to whiteness um, is, is, is part of that, you know, that greater strategy, right? To separate us, right? And I think a big part of, you know, the problem is that a lot of Asian American immigrants arrive in this country with the anti-blackness, you know, that's been taught to them from the exploitation of anti-blackness, which is very purposeful, right? So they arrive here wanting to identify separately, wanting to assimilate to whiteness. But as my grandmother would point out, and anyone looking at history, Asians have not been able to, to assimilate to whiteness in this, in this country. They never will, right? Um, and the best way to, to fight against racism is civil rights, right? And, and solidarity with other groups of people, groups, groups of people of color. Um, so I think that these are really, um, important themes that come up in my grandmother's archive throughout um, throughout her work. And it's so fascinating how useful these ideas are and relevant right now, and they're not new. Um, and that people really don't know this history. So like one of the things I've learned, I think, from working on the archive um, is one, I mean, I've, I knew that she was, you know, looking at many different topics and many different movements all the time, and she was always connecting them. Um, and she was really able to connect how, you know, uh, you know, homophobia, how, you know, violence against trans people, how that connects to racism, discrimination and mm. equity. You know, she was talking about those things, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And I'm not sure we all understood, right, um, how those things connected. And now now it's very, really clear. Um, but I've seen also how hungry people are for this information. And so um, I've been doing a lot of speaking around the country, sharing pieces of the archive, sharing, you know, some examples of the work um, in different contexts at colleges, at high schools, uh, sometimes in, in, in even um, primary schools with students, with, with educators, with different groups of people. And people are so interested in knowing this history and feel very empowered by it, actually. Um, and I think that that's really, it's important. And, and, I, and I can see how relevant it is and how important it is to make Yuri's archive and the many different movements uh, that she documented, right, um, and, and kept track of um, to make them more public and accessible to more people.
I really appreciate this. I really appreciate you sharing this because uh, what we are seeing, especially the last couple of years, uh, for example, we see this movement to take down the Confederate statues. We've seen uh, this movement to rename uh, public schools that were named after Confederate generals and uh, Confederate politicians. Uh, we've seen uh, the impact of Tulsa, the history of Tulsa and other black communities that were thriving and were eventually burned down and and with so many murders of black community members and we start to see what that impact is and just recently we learned about the indigenous children and what was going on in these uh churches and why mm -hmm. this this excavating of history is so important to realize that the history that we were taught in the public schools was through a white lens mm -hmm. and through a form of white supremacy because when you were like for Asian Americans like myself that grew up in America, I grew up uh, as the first one born as re as a son of refugees from the Vietnam from par parents who lived through the Vietnam War and the Cambodian uh, the Khmer Rouge uh, genocide, and we weren't taught about that particular history. And if we were taught about the Vietnam War, it was glanced over. It was about maybe a paragraph or a chapter, and uh, and nothing about the implication, the harm that the U.S. created, uh, mm -hmm. right? And and we don't see the historical figures of Asian Americans present. And when I think about it, it makes me feel angry that as this young Asian Americans, like, like, like I'm not proud of my community. I'm not proud. There's no one I can look up to. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I would hear from other uh, friends of mine who are Asian and they were taught nothing about their own history and what that does to us as a community, right? Mm -hmm. So when we start to learn about your grandmother and Grace Lee, uh, the Helen Zios of the world, there's so much power. There's so much mm -hmm. possibilities, the imagination that can come from this. Uh, yeah, and I think I think Helen and Yuri and Grace would definitely say also they they absolutely took their inspiration and learned so much from watching um, the, the the you know what what the black movement that emerged you know um, in the 1960s and 1970s you know from uh, civil rights. To, to black nationalism, right? I think Yuri learned so much about civil, you know, from, from being involved in civil rights and then radicalized and actually learned so much and, 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 and was so inspired actually by black nationalism in a lot of ways. And I think it's really important to understand that, you know, I know many Asian Americans, Kazu Ijima, uh, Yuri Kochiyama, who would talk about this, that watching black people sort of claim their identity with strength, with power, with, with historical context, was was exemplary to them was a model for for how to claim their asian american identity with integrity you know with strength and um and they really learned from that and you know yuri yuri would definitely say that without you know the civil rights movement and and black nationalism and and, and malcolm and all these activists so many people so many activists that she met that influenced her her um evolution right her her evolution and her philosophical thinking she would completely um credit many other activists that she met to helping her to gain this understanding right to getting there and and that's again a really important piece of why 
doing multicultural community building work and solidarity work is so critical because you get to see things from so many perspectives. It just helps you. It just informs your understanding of it. And also with the recent uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the Asian American movements that, are, that have been going on for the past few years. Now, I wonder, I think a lot of people would always ask, what would your grandma think of the current movements? Uh, would she, what would she actually critique and what would she feel most encouraged about in these movements? And also, I don't want to leave out your grandfather, Bill, too, because he was also a big part of this. But I'd like oh, to sure. get what their reaction would be. I know that given their own history, I would hope that, that, um, that this is what she was dreaming so, of, right? Yeah, so I, I, I think I could be pretty clear about, I mean, I was certain about that. If they were alive today, they would absolutely be, so, be supporting Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and those kinds of movements. Um, they would be, they were when they were alive and still would be now actively, you know, working against police brutality. You know, they were very involved, both of them, with prison abolition. Um, you know, a lot of that you know, uh, inspired by my grandmother's own experience of watching her own father be, be you know, uh, interrogated to death by the FBI. You know, that's a, you know, that's a place of, you know, part of her first experience, right? Even before internment that happened, right? Um, so I think that she absolutely, you know, so much of what her work was about uh, prison abolition and police brutality that she'd absolutely be involved in that now. I think um, she would be both disheartened to see the level of violence, uh, racial violence that has happened, um, but also excited about the opportunity to build community and to see there is a lot of people. I mean, I, I, I've been really encouraged and I have a lot of hope uh, from the like so much radical BIPOC solidarity work that I've seen happening in the last year in response to everything. Of course, that's not getting the media attention. What gets the media attention is Black people attacking Asians on, in, on TV, right? When in fact, when you look at the, the research, right, University of Michigan, a, a numerous, numerous uh, organizations have done uh, research and actually looked into the data, right, on the incidences of anti-Asian violence, uh, racism in this country in the last six, you know, 12 to 18 months, and it's overwhelmingly committed by white males, right? This is not surprising, but what do we see on the news and what is everyone talking about? Black people attacking Asians. That's what everyone's talking about, right? That's part of the American white supremacist or an imperialist uh, narrative, right? And so mm -hmm. I think it shows us that we have to be, be more discerning, right, about the news and what we hear and what we see and completely con continue to work toward that solidarity all the time and understand that, you know, what understand what's really happening and, and what the powers are that we really need to be, you know, fighting against. Your grandma would be 100 years old uh, today. And what lessons did she impart on you growing up? And how did she prepare you for the world that you would be living in? And how did it inform you as a mother of two daughters? That's a, that's a great question. I think um, the, one of the great things about you, you know, she was, I was very involved in my life. I, you know, my mom was always working when I was a kid. So I spent a lot of time, uh, my cousin Zulu and I spent a lot of time with our grandma, with our grandparents, both of them while, you know, our moms were working. And so, you know, the, you know, in our, in the Kojiyama household, you're just doing whatever they're doing. Right. So if they were, working on a political mailing or getting ready for a dinner or a meeting or a march with it. They were making signs, if they were printing leaflets, if they were hosting people, whatever it was, we were doing that work too, right? From the time I could walk and talk, I don't remember not having to participate in whatever was happening, whether that was 
a march or a, a, a fun family event, you know, whatever it was. Um, they, I would say my grandparents probably hosted events in their house several times a day, seven days a week. Uh, 365 mm -hmm. days a year, whether wow. that was meetings or a birthday party or an anniversary or, you know, 20 people coming and sleeping on the floor, um, whatever, you know, um, impromptu, you know, that kind of thing. They were always, always hosting people. Um, and I think what I saw is their incredible flexibility. What I learned from was their generosity. Uh, anything that they had was available to anyone else, whether that was food or a place to sleep or a roof on their head or clothes or whatever people needed, whoever they were. Uh, I think that's an incredible lesson to see as a kid, that level of generosity uh, and just embracing anyone who comes in the door. I think also watching, being able to witness all the different kinds of people that I saw you know, them interact with both in their home, but in the streets of Harlem, in the streets of New York, you know, they were at many different kinds of activities. Um, and just to be, you know, I was just tagging along me and Zulu, you know, with everything, whether that was in their house or in the streets. And I think to see their incredible, uh, how many people they knew and, and all the different kinds of people and that they were equally passionate about, you know, some political thing and also about, you know, you know, arts, art, you know, performances and supporting artists and supporting, you know, people personally, you know, and, and their lives, I think, to see them balance all of that very evenly, evenly. Um, and I think to probably to see their humility, uh, their constant humility. Um, I, they were so kind and, and really impressed with everyone they met. Um, and I think I, I, I watched them be interviewed many times in their lives and people would say, you know, what's the best experience you ever had? Or what's the most impressive thing? And they would always say the people we met, wow. the people we met. And that makes sense to me because the people they met, it was exciting and made for an incredible life. And I think it all helped them develop their own thinking and philosophies and communities. And I think to be a kid in that household was a, was a, was a gift um, mm. that has really impacted the way I interact with people now, the way I raise my own children. You know, I, I, they just have to come along. If this is what I'm doing, you know, or whatever we're working on, we're just going to be doing it together. Um, and I think that's a good way to raise your kids uh, in the movement. Like they, it's not a separate, you know, going to a march or doing things for people or being generous or helping people is not a sort of separate from your everyday life. It was part of everything we did. Um, mm. I never saw any inconsistency. Um, and so, you know, I have to say for my parents, for my parents, for my mom and her siblings, you know, Yuri and Bill had six kids. I, I don't, and I have to say, you know, my experience as a grandparent, as a grandchild was different, right? Because she's their actual, you know, she, that was their parents, right? So I have to say, you know, I know that there, you know, there were things that they sacrificed, you know, you know, having the parents so politically involved and so involved in so many things from young. Um, I know that, but as a grandchild, I think I had a little bit more distance, you know, I didn't expect them to parent me, you know what I mean, in the same way. So I think my cousin Zulu and I really just benefited in every way from everything was happening, you know, so I, I would say for my mom and her siblings, they probably sacrificed a lot, like a lot of time, right, with their mom and dad, right. But I don't think I think all of them really cherished and uh, the life that they had uh, with, you know, in their household and, and really uh, value the experience they had with parents so involved, um, you know, in, in, in their communities and in social movements. Um, yeah. And I think that it, it was an, an incredible experience um, for me to have and really in, uh, informed and influenced, I think, how I parent my own children.
Have you had any interactions with Gracely Boggs or Fred Korematsu as well? I wanted to know what your grandma's relationship with uh, them is like. Yeah, I know that Grace and, and my grandmother knew each other. I'm sure that they, I, I think they were like on a few panels together, I believe. Um, I never met Grace personally. Um, uh, and um, I went to, I think, a screening that she was at <laughs> like years ago when she was alive. Um, but I did not uh, know her personally. But yeah, I know that they definitely um, were in touch. And, you know, they're both, uh, you know, were on the East Coast and involved in some similar movements uh, or some of the same movements. So um, I know that they must have been talking, but I don't really know too much about their personal interactions. Yeah, you know, I think what I've been thinking about, because in Illinois, uh, Illinois just passed the uh, the law which will require public schools to teach Asian American history. And it's so exciting. It's like the first state in the U.S. to, to mm -hmm. do so. Right. Yeah, and, it's huge. And I, and I also know uh, Grace Lee Boggs Estate they're going to look to turn it into a museum very soon, which is also mm -hmm. very exciting. Now, yeah. now I also would like to ask is, how would you like the history books to teach Yuri Kochiyama? Because I know that there's always this fear of, is it going to be whitewashed? Is it going to be like, the, is she going to be given the Martin Luther King treatment? Because your grandma was a controversial figure too. Uh, she was very outspoken about 9-11. She was clearly outspoken about uh, the military industrial complex and i can only imagine if she were alive right now watching what's going on in afghanistan oh, she yeah. would have been be absolutely crazy. aghast yeah um i think that's a good question it's, i mean it's something i'm quite concerned about right now you know um uh it's exciting on the one hand to see people talking about you know her work and writing about her work and making film projects and documentary projects, but it's also very scary, right? Because you worry that people will take things out of context or sensationalize aspects of her life. And, and one of the things that I, you know, I've already noticed that, you know, the thing that's provocative to people is that, you know, she was friends with Malcolm and she's the person who, you know, she was there when he was assassinated and she's holding his head in, in that very famous picture. Um, and I think, of course, Malcolm was absolutely the most influential, absolutely, you know, in her, uh, political evolution and her, and her, you know, she would say that Malcolm, you know, sort of developed, helped her develop a her real political consciousness, right? Um, I think at the same time though, I think it can be sensationalized to just that moment, right? Yes. In time, when in fact, you know, she had a lifetime of work and many, 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 many movements and, and many different activists that she worked with very closely that I think it's important to understand because it reflects her politics, right? Um, that she was really involved, involved not just in black nationalist movements, in the United States and you know, outside of the United States, but also in, uh, in Puerto Rican independista work and you know, indigenous movements all around the country. And um, uh, I mean, all around the world and uh, just many different kinds of movements um, that she was involved in because I think in general, she would have, been involved, in, she was anti-imperialist, she was an anti-imperialist, right? So, you know, whether it was, you know, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-capitalism, right? She's gonna be involved in, in all of those things. So I think in terms of her legacy, I think it's really important to me that people understand the, the, the holistic sort of her, her political philosophy, because I actually think it's really useful um, for developing a real, you know, a real internationalist, uh, point of view, right? And and a real understanding of of all the dynamics, right? Of of imperialism and capitalism and 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 
equity, right? And human rights and all of these things. And I think, um, I think those are really important about her work not to um, sensationalize or, or focus too much on one particular aspect of it. Yeah, I think it's also very important to not reduce to the specific part of history, although like the image of Yuri holding Malcolm X's head is very symbolic of the friendship, the loyalty that she has. Uh, but also, I, I do fear, as you were mentioning, like reducing it to one event or not talking about the, the political stances that she took and what she was already outspoken and was way ahead of of so many other activists in engaging in conversations with whether it's on transphobia, homophobia, to the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, which is so super relevant right now. Mm -hmm. And my fear as, and along with your fears is, how our school is going to talk about uh, the work of Yuri, of Grace, and so many other Asian Americans who, uh, who have been uh, vehemently outspoken and critical about U.S. policies, right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's also a start because um, the the reason why I learned about your grandmother and Grace and so many other Asian American folks, they weren't coming from K through twelve or even college. Uh, in my own experience, they came from my activist friends. Mm -hmm. They came from my Facebook feed uh, for the past ten years. It's how I learned about their work. Mm -hmm. And and today, still, I get people, like fellow Asian folks, when I bring up the, the name Yuri Kojiyama, their reaction is, who is she? And mm -hmm. this is where I have to sit down and give a little bit of a historical lesson. And it tells me how painfully behind we are of what we don't know and what that means to our community. And... I'm also at the same time very encouraged that we have this huge interest of Asian American history right now and what that what that means about our identity, how this will inform the movements that we would look to create that will dismantle white supremacy, that will dismantle the anti-black, the anti-Asian um, racism that's been uh, permeating for uh, for since the country's foundation, right? So. I also wanted to ask you about your own parents, too, in this. Uh, I know mm -hmm. that they've been very much heavily involved, and I also feel it's important that they deserve uh, the recognition and the work that they're doing, too. But I wanted to know what their roles were uh, in terms of how they were involved uh, in your grandma's life in this movement, but also in how they were parenting you as well. Um, so I'd say... Um... My mom, you know, uh, you know, my mom and dad have both passed away now, so they're neither one of them living um, uh, still now. But both of the and my stepfather, all, all three of them have passed away, but they were all very, very politically active. My stepfather and my father were both Black Panthers, and my mother was a very active political activist um, from you know probably the time she was a child too. I mean, definitely since she was a child too, because she grew up in that household, right? So I, I think all three of them were in, in, in many ways impacted and influenced by Yuri's activism. Um, so I guess I'd start, you know, with my mom, you know, having grown up in that household, you know, as Yuri's politics became more radical, so did their consciousness as children in that household, right? Growing up in Manhattanville projects in Harlem. Um, it was very, and in the midst of the 60s, right, it was very easy, and they all attend, you know, they, I don't know if you know the story, but when my grandparents uh, arrived in Harlem, I think it was like, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, and um, 
the Harlem Freedom Schools had just begun. And because they had just moved in a, to a predominantly black neighborhood, they felt like they should all enroll in the Harlem Freedom Schools and learn the history and, you know, be a part of, the, you know, what was happening. And that's sort of their introduction, right, to, to uh, really to the civil rights movement in Harlem was joining the Harlem Parents Committee because my parent, my grandparents had six children in, in, in public school in Harlem and, you know, and, and enrolling themselves and their six children in the Harlem Freedom Schools. And I think, you know, as children to be living in that community, you're, you know, you Japanese American kids, you're, you're living there and then you're going to freedom school and, you know, you're growing, these are your friends you're growing up with. I think, you know, it was very easy for them to get swept up in the politics of, of the moment, right, and to be really involved. Involved and um, I don't know if you know my my oldest uh, my mother's two oldest siblings Audie and Billy um, went to register voters in the South in the '60s. Um, it was a very dangerous thing to do. Mm. Uh, my mom was always talked about how angry she was. She wasn't allowed to go because she was too young. She was like 14. Wow. And um, but my aunt and my uncle went. You know, at like 15 and 16. You know what I mean? So, so you know, um, they they were wanted to be involved. They were very involved. And my parent, my parents, uh, my mother Aichi and my father Yasin, who was a Black Panther, met very young. They met at 18. They you know had a, had me and 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 got married like all you know very quickly at that wow. time. So they were very young in their own lives, but also in their own political philosophies, right? As as you know, as things were emerged, you know, as as you know, they were in the moment, right, of things happening. Um, and I definitely grew up in the context of black nationalism, right? So I was born in 71. My father's in the Black Panther Party. Then my parents got divorced three years later. And my, my stepfather was also a Black Panther. So I, you know, grew up very, and, and then Yuri was, probably you know the 70s was the most radical probably time of her life wow. right because malcolm had passed and you know these radical black nationalist movements are emerging and she was all involved right so that's the context in which i was born in right in a you know that environment um and i think it was great for me you know to grow up in harlem in that environment um, fully immersed in it. And um, my parents, I think, you know, just exposed me to as much as they, you know, everything, right? The political part, the cultural part, everything. At the same time, I was also very exposed to Japanese culture as well. I, I studied Japanese classical dance in the midst of all of that. I, mm. you know, um, and so that was like, I was allowed to sort of do everything, you know, and um, and be involved in, in all these communities. And I think that my parents wanted me to have a really broad perspective. Um, and I think, um, I think having, you know, such a sort of uh, childhood and education and black nationalism, you know, growing up, I think it is probably an unusual experience for someone, um, I, I uh, you know, who's black and Asian, I'm not sure, you know, um, but I think it, it felt all very natural to me and very, very empowering. I think, um, in a lot of ways. So I think um, my parents' influence on me was that I just always saw them in the movement as well. Always, always also, uh, my mother was at political meetings, you know, several days a week, you know, in my childhood, and I would just tag along with her too. So if I wasn't with Yuri and Bill doing something like that, I was with my mother or my stepfather, or, you know, uh, doing this kind of stuff. So um, I think it was... There, there was a lot of con a lot of continuity, you know, in all of that, right? That their politics were very radical as well, um, but they were also very open, right? To to me, sort of, you know, I, I wasn't forced into anything, or I didn't have to do, you know, things. But um, I felt like, you know, I wanted to be in that, and I think, you know, everyone in our family was sort of raised to sort of 
be very exposed to all the philosophies and, and the political movements that were happening, but also to make our own choices. And I always felt um, very empowered to do that. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's just so beautiful because um, what I'm so happy like talking with you is that it's not just Yuri doing this movement, it's your entire family. It's a, it's almost like a movement dynasty of in some ways. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but just the <laughs> fact that uh, someone told me, I think one of my dear friends told me this, and he said that that to have a meaningful movement, it starts with your family. It starts with the conversations, the dialogues that you're doing with your family. Mm-hmm. And your family is a great example of that. Yuri and Bill set the stage that this is what is in my heart. This is what I hope that you would be inspired by. And, you know, see what your parents, your uncles and aunts and cousins, siblings, their siblings. It's mind blowing. I, I can, but it tells you like the level of impact that, that their passion, that their, um, that their willingness to fight this and to create these communities and what that creates, what this fosters, what openings can be uh, presented. So I think what you shared is such a great example of it. It always starts at home. And mm-hmm. and here you are, you know, you're doing the same for your daughters. And um, I also want to, uh, to uh, dive in more about the Blasian experiences because mm-hmm. this is an experience that does not get talked about in terms of of like uh, Blasian folks within the Black Lives Matter movement, Blasian folks within the context of the Stop Asian Hate uh, movement. And like the in the Blasian communities, there, there's experiences of both anti-Black and anti-Asian racism and invisibility uh, in terms of the community issues that are not being addressed. But at the same time, you know, we see high profile people like Vice President Kamala Harris, you see Bruno Mars, Heinz Ward, uh, the singer Her, you see, and Naomi Osaka, you see them having visible platforms. But I, but yeah. there's something that's also very missing within the context of where Blasian community members fit in uh, between Black and Asian communities. And I'd like to kind of get your own perspective and sure. your experience on that. Yeah, so I guess I'd, I'd have to say, I can't say my experience is representative of other of the other Black and Asian people, because I think it really depends on where you grew up, your family. I mean, people who grew up in, you know, I have friends who grew up in, in Oakland or Northern California, very different experience, people from New York or LA or whatever. Um, and uh, so I would say in my experience, a couple of things, but I think probably because of the family that I'm, I'm from and the community, I, I knew quite a few Black and Asian kids growing up. So one, I didn't, I mean, my own cousin is, you know, my own cousin Zulu, who's very close to me in age, is Black and, is black and Japanese, but also uh, we had so many friends and family members uh, in California and in New York, um, you know, where we went back and forth a lot um, that were Black and Asian, that it was normal to me to to one see so I didn't feel isolated in that experience and I know that I know I've met black and Asian people who are very isolated in that experience right the other piece I have to say is that I I I don't I've I don't think I've hardly I've or ever experienced anti-blackness in any Asian any from any Asian part of my community or family ever right so not even I grew up, you know, I spent 10 years at the Buddhist church in New York studying karate and uh, Nihon Buyo, Japanese classical dance. 
my all my Jap all my dance teachers were you know uh, Japanese Americans, but really steeped in Japanese culture. They spoke Japanese, and they couldn't be happier that I was taking that I was studying Japanese classical dance. And in fact, at the Buddhist church. Um, so many of the kids in the Buddhist church, you know, taking classes, karate, you know, whatever these Japanese things, Japanese dance, uh, whatever, were part Japanese and part something else, actually. That's kind of the norm. So I didn't feel unusual at all growing up, both again, in my the Kochiyama home, you know, uh, in bo both my family and uh, my grandparents also lived in Harlem. So we we're all in Harlem. But then, um, but also like in our broader Asian American community, because maybe because the people we knew were so also politically active and, and anti-racist too, but even at the Buddhist church, which is a, you know, sort of religious sort of spiritual, you know, community too, um, I did not experience that. So I have to say, I know that that's not like, that's not necessarily every Blasian's experience, right? Um, so I did, if I ever experienced anti-blackness from Asians, it was never, in my personal or New York community context, right? So I can't say that's an experience I had. Um, so I think I was very lucky to always feel very seen, very visible. My father's family, my my father is black, and many other things. And but he's, you know uh, he was Black Panther. He's from uh, Long Island City, from Queens, from the Queensbridge Projects, from a large family, and. Um, that entire, you know, he had nine brothers and sisters. I was always 100% fully accepted in that family as well, in that community. Um, and so, and then even growing up in Harlem, I did not experience anti-Asianness ever. Um, I went to public school for years. I went to kindergarten and grant public housing projects. Um, counter to what the narrative is or the what people think about, you know, you know, I've had people meet me so many times and go, oh my God, you're black and Asian. It must've been so hard for you. And I'm like, what do they mean? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, but I know that's because other people, you know, maybe other people have experienced that. And I grew up maybe in a kind of bubble, right? In New York city, in Harlem, in my community, in my family. Um, I was very uh, accepted, seen. Um, I felt very empowered actually. Um, and I, as I mentioned, I grew up in this black nationals context. So I guess the hardest thing for me, I have to, you know, to be honest, and I've joked about this with my kids growing up, it was really hard for me not to be able to have it. I, and not hard. It wasn't hard for me. It was, I was disappointed that I couldn't, like, I didn't have an Afro. I didn't look as black as my cousin Zulu or other people in my family at a moment where, where black was, you know, black is beautiful was the mantra, right? So, you know, I wanted to, you know, I, I remember that as a kid feeling like I didn't look black enough. And I probably feel like that was the the only time in my life that I was really like a little bit you know not even on you know I, I guess just wished I looked more black I guess as a kid you know because I was growing up in this very black nationalist context um but I think you know I think again like I've been very lucky to always feel accepted seen uh like I am part of that community whatever it wherever I was so for college, I went to Spelman. I went to UMass Amherst first for the first year, and then I transferred to Spelman College, which was a gift, one of the best experiences of my life. I'm so glad that I got to go to an HBCU. I'm so proud to be an HBCU graduate. Um, I try to tell people all the time, like what an incredibly valuable experience it is uh, on so many levels. And having been uh, a New Yorker and a, well, to be a Harlemite with two black parents, Black Panther parents, I think I thought, you know, I know about blackness, you know, going to Atlanta, going to Spelman. But then you go there and there's black people from all over the world, not just the country, but all over the world. 
um, and the perspective you gain, right? And the sense of pride and connection, right? Around, about the, you know, black experience, black diaspora, you know, everything. And, and um, the, the focus on education and, and, and education as a way to progress and to move forward in that environment is so inspiring and so uh, incentivizing, I think, as, as a person, as a black person, as a black woman to be in that environment. I went to Spelman College with all black women. I had no idea how empowering that experience would be. Mm. Um, and it was, and I think it makes you so confident. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't know that. And I watch uh, these days, a lot of um, really smart black kids get into these like Ivy League schools and they go into these spaces that are really hard to be in. Um, emotionally, right? And you have the academic skill to be there, but there's all this other stuff, right? That happens that makes it hard. And one of the things that I think is really beautiful about my HBCU experience is that you're just empowered and empowered by the teachers and your peers and, you know, everyone pushing and believing in you, um, I think. And then to, to have that experience, to be, a, to be a black and Asian person and to be able to be in that environment and to be there and to be accepted in it and, uh, to experience it was was a gift to me, I think. And, and, and I'm so glad that I had that experience. Oh, wow. That's incredible. And, you know, I just really appreciate you uh, sharing uh, this experience, too. And and also, I know that, as you mentioned, like, this is not a monolithic narrative. This is not a single story narrative of the Blasian experiences. And because there's, it's, there's so many vast history, uh, uh, you could be black, you could be Jamaican and Filipino. And that example, there's different histories, there's different mm -hmm. legacies, right? And and I was just also thinking about uh, what this means in terms of when we become more educated and we start to get into leadership spaces. And places like in the Ivy League schools where you're the only black person, the only Asian person as a leader, it's very difficult because there's white gatekeepers, there's mm -hmm. tokenizing, and this is kind of where we are at when we are trying to to see the power that white supremacy has in these mm -hmm. institutions and what it's going to have to take to dissolve all of that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and but it also helps that your grandmother, your family have shared the blueprints, been in constant communication not just with the Harlem community, but across the US and across the globe. And, mm -hmm. and I love how your grandma communicates through her writing and her mm -hmm. correspondences. Um, because I can only imagine what it would be like in the digital age, but just the fact that it's right in your hands, that it's available mm -hmm. to these future generations. Now, now, let me ask you, so as you're working on the archives, how would you look to engage young black and Asian community folks in, in your neighborhood and in the community spaces that you're in? And what are you looking to help um, push them toward, or I don't wanna say push them towards, but to help them to think uh, or to consider when they are getting involved <clears throat> in these movements? Um, I think that's a big question. I'm, I'll try to um, <laughs> I'll try to address it as best <laughs> I can. Um, a couple of things, I think, um, we're in a process, right? I don't, we don't have, like, you know, we're, you know, we're constantly, um, my aunt and I who manage the archive project um, are constantly meeting and talking about how we should be thinking about, you know, all of this stuff like long-term, but I think um, we're also still very much in process. So um, I think right now our big priority is to make as much as her, of her archive as possible accessible. 
Um, we've recently donated um, uh, and sold part uh, most of our archive to Columbia. Uh, we did a sort of a combination of, of those two and uh, Columbia University, partly because Columbia University was the most poised to make the most of the archive publicly accessible. And that was one of the motivations of working with them. Um, we hope to do conferences and um, help, you know, I, I know Columbia's planning is they're already digitizing a lot of the archive so that it becomes more publicly accessible online. Um, there's definitely plans to do, you know, much more work around, you know, I'm talking to various professors and um, people teaching at Columbia about creating, you know, more content, you know, uh, curriculum around the, you know, what's in the archive there at Columbia. Um, and so I think some of that will emerge in the coming years, but, you know, um, I can't say exactly how that will play out, but I would, I guess the best example of, of one of the, the things that I've been involved in in the community and seeing how her legacy and her work and, and, and story can be really useful now is that, um, over the last couple of years, I worked with a group of young organizers and activists, uh, and they're all educators and activists and, and organizers who, who contacted me after Yuri passed away in 2014, and they wanted to do a Yuri Malcolm sort of a community mural project, right, as a way of educating um, young people in the community, but also, you know, creating a legacy and, 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 and history in the community. And, you know, initially, I thought, okay, that's nice. It's a mural, you know, it'd be like a two to three month project. Yeah, we'll do that. It ended up being, I don't know, two and a half year project just to get the mural done. We did seven public workshops in that, in public presentations and workshops in that time that took us from the Brooklyn Museum to the Audubon Ballroom to the Manhattanville Projects to community centers to museums <laughs> to all kinds of places. Um, and we were in these multi-generational, multicultural, multiracial um communities all over New York City. And I think a couple of things that were amazing um, is that is this group of, like I said, these, these, all these people were doing this on their own time, you know, just volunteering. Um, all these people were so young, they were in their 20s when we started, some of them are a little bit older now. But, you know, I was amazed that these young people who could never have, you know, never met Yuri in their lives, you know, were had learned about her, whatever they learned, and, and, and were able to make this connection with why it was relevant for them to be involved. And then by working together, we, we they developed curriculum, we developed these workshops, we got to this point that any of us could present still now any of us can can run these workshops can present. I just presented with two of the people at Columbia University's reimagining uh, a teacher's college reimagining education conference a couple of weeks ago. And more has emerged from that. I'm gonna be doing a racial literacy roundtable series in the fall for Teachers College. Um, and, and, and thinking of ways to continue to work with these activists and organizers, we're continuing to do this work. And um, we kind of manage these social media platforms together that came out of the project. One is called um, From Harlem With Love. Um, and I think the one on, that's on Facebook and the one on Instagram, I think is just the Yuri Malcolm project or something like that, Yuri, Yuri Koshyama Malcolm X project. And um, we continue to generate a lot of interest. Uh, people reach out to us all the time. So any of us can respond. And, you know, I think it's kind of beautiful that, I, that we worked so closely together and they're so good at presenting about Yuri now that any of us could do it. It doesn't have to be me. And I love that it doesn't have to be me um, and that there's all these other people and they're black and Asian and Latinx and they're all educators and they're all teachers and they're all activists. 
and they're all working with different communities. So, you know, they work in, you know, different institutions, different communities. So they continue to do this work, right? And take it sort of out in this way, which I think is the goal, right? To, to do that, right? And, and to use the examples, right? And I think all of them have, you know, explained to me how that project and this work has, has helped them expand their own philosophy, their own communities, their own work. Um, so it's really, you know, generative, I think, for all of us. Um, and I think that's what we want to continue to do. Um, of course, we're, uh, you know, hoping to get a lot more funding. It's okay. <laughs> we're hoping to get a lot more funding um, in, the, in the coming years to be able to do much more. I would like to do tons more uh, uh, education uh, programming because, you um, one of the one of the the, the, the bright spots of, of this COVID thing and everything going virtual is that I have been able to present in spaces that I would never have had time to do, you know, with a full-time job. But you know, I've presented in high schools and all kinds of places virtually all around the country in, in community colleges and all these spaces where I would never have been able to be in person, right? Um, and it's has been incredible to me how interested people are how relevant it is to them how useful it is to them even little kids like it's 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 fascinating so i think that the goal is continue to, to tell that story to share um i think the legacy the most important legacy to us is 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 to continue to do bipoc solidarity work right and and continue to you know you used to say all the time that you know we need to build bridges not walls and i mean it's so like so relevant, like literally right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, how important it is, right? To, uh, you know, she used to say, you need to decolonize your mind, you know? And and I think that's so critical. And I think so many of those things we need to just still be doing. And I mm -hmm. think um, it's still very inspiring. So I think that that's what we want to continue to do is, you know, is that work um, against racism, against any kind of oppression. And where can people follow your work? And also lastly, before I let you get going, so what advice would you give to someone who is brand new, who is just trying to figure out where to begin? What advice would you give to that someone who is curious about learning their history and wanting to get involved? I would say, you know, one of the things that Yuri used to tell me, I, I love this story, you know, just a picture of her doing this, is when they first came to Harlem, um, you know, she said there was so much happening, right? It was like, you know, so my Harlem was like on fire. And she said, you could walk across 125th Street and like on one corner, it'd be like, you know, uh, Fruits of Islam, you know, talking. And then another corner would be Yorubas and another corner, it would be SNCC activists, right? And another corner, you know, it would be another, you know, some uh, civil rights activists or something like that. And um, she said, what's amazing is you could take it all in. You could listen to different speakers. You could read their pamphlets. You could go to their meetings and just take it all in. And, and she did. And she just took it all in as much as possible, read as much as possible, went to as many events as possible to really try to get the, the broadest context, right, for what was happening, right? And, you know, that's how she encountered Malcolm. It's how she really understood, you know, started to learn about what he was doing in the Organization of African American and Unity. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of information out there. Um, there's a lot of organizing happening. There are so many people, um, really putting a lot of, you know, a lot of effort in, in multicultural community building. And I think that, you know, 
what people really, you know, if you're really interested in intersectionalism is, is to read, right? And, and to meet, you know, and to put yourself in spaces, right? Go to events. Well, now, you know, now that it, hopefully, you know, you can do that safely and securely. But I think, you know, virtually, I went to a ton of virtual events in, in the last 18 months that I would not have been able to do, you know, otherwise. And I learned so much. Um, I made, I, I made so many new relationships. And I think, you know, also to just stay really open I think that that's really critical. And I think, you know, Yuri and Malcolm certainly would have said this, but Yuri would always talk about that um, your, your political philosophy should evolve. It should evolve over time. You should never be like, this is it for me. You know, I only think this, right? And I think the more people you meet, you know, um, the more history you get exposed to both in the United States and internationally, um, the more your, your political philosophy will evolve, right? As, as well as your relationships. So I, you know, that, to me, that would be the, the best advice to stay open, to, to engage with people, especially people who are different from you. Thank you so much for the rich advice that you share here. And um, well, before I forget, uh, where can we follow your work too? Like where can people, you know, um, I, I'm like, I don't actually, I have a, an Instagram, but I don't really use it for political purposes. Um, but, um, actually we have a Yuri Kochiyama Facebook, uh, uh, it's called remembering Yuri Kochiyama. There's a Facebook page there. Um, our family sort of intermittently posts some of the stuff that they're working on there, uh, that we're working on as a family there. Um, we're going to be more proactive about, about putting, um, information there. Um, and actually we're in the process of building a Yuri Kochiyama website. Oh, um, nice. so I can share more with you soon. Um, that's going to be done, I think in a couple of months, um, as a place for people to come for information. Also, you know, again, again, in terms of making sure that the right messages go out about her legacy, I think it's really important to us that we share the Yuri Kochiyama speeches and videos and, you know, writings that, you know, that we think are, you know, the most important, most representative of her. Um, so we'll be using that website to do all of that. I want to say thank you so much for your time. It is such a pleasure just to really, uh, to really dive in with you and talk about your grandma's legacy and also your family's legacy and what you are doing too. And it's, it's unbelievably just move uh, moving and a uh, very rather very touching for me i'm just kind of like fumbling for words here so i apologize to the listeners but i just want to say just to see the, the generations of your family do this work and what you have shared is is critical and i cannot thank you enough for what your family has done for our communities and we are well, so much you. better as a society uh to learn all of this history and what this all means to us and how we start to restructure our society in a way that works for all of our communities. So, uh, Kami, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. And I hope that people get to follow uh, your work and keep an eye on the archives as we start to see more of her documentation come out. And I cannot wait to see what this involves and I cannot wait to, uh, to read them. All right. Well, thank you so much. And yeah, officially right now, it's just called the Yuri Kochiyama Archives Project. You know, that's how we're, that's the name for it. But um, we will be, I'll, I'll share, more, share more information soon about the website and all of that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Akemi. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on 
The Bunry Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at bunmi underscore chronicles. Thank you again, and looking forward to sharing more with you.